Hey everybody, this is the What School Could Be in Hawaii podcast. My name is Josh Rapoon. I'm your host. This is another on-the-road edition, and I'm super excited today to be interviewing Cecilia Chung, um, who is one of my former students, actually, from my days when I taught at La Pietra Hawaii School for, for Girls. Um, before I introduce Cecilia, and you'll hear her voice for the first time, I just want to provide a little bit of context for the following discussion. Um, Cecilia is a public school teacher here in Hawaii, so I want to give you a few numbers um, about our public schools in this state. So the Hawaii Department of Education is a single school district um, which covers five islands. So the island of Lanai, of Molokai, of Maui, of Hawaii Island, and Oahu. We have 15 complex areas within the Department of Education. And in those 15 complexes, there are 283 public schools, which educate roughly 185,000 students. And those who educate those 185,000 students are 13,000 strong public school educators. So that's, that's who we are in the state. And so that's the segue to introducing Cecilia Chung, um, who is our now new um, State Teacher of the Year. Cecilia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. So I want to start, Cecilia, by going back to January 22nd, 2016, which seems like a very long time ago now. Um, you attended my second screening of the film, Most Likely to Succeed, which was produced by Ted Dintersmith and directed by Greg, White, Greg Whiteley. And I did it in my home community of Kahalu on the island of Oahu at Key Project. Um, so I want to ask you about that night and what you remember about the film and what you remember about the discussion after the film and then the discussion that happened after the discussion going on into the, the weeks and months that followed that. What was it like? Yeah, I remember um, watching the film and not really knowing what I was expecting. I went because my former high school teacher, you, Mr. Rapoon, <laughs> said I need to be there. So there I did go. what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. I sat in the audience with other educators, and I didn't realize, like, probably a lot of education leaders, a lot of future education leaders, and I was watching this film, and I, it was such an eye-opening experience for me to, to really challenge myself with this question of, is the current model of schooling not really what we want it to be or need it to be for kids? What could school look like, and what are ways that people have been doing it around the country? Um, and it just, it really made me think about where are the voices in this conversation? Because the, the movie itself, it was very inspiring. And then after it ended, I was just blown away by the energy in the room. So the, I remember this one moment. I, I, I think it was a student. It must have been a student because he was very young. But he had stood up. I don't know if you remember, he had glasses on. Yeah, mm -hmm. he, he was speaking to the movie, and I remember thinking to myself, a student feels so strongly about this. Why are we not listening to them? Because they are the ones that are experiencing this. A really big part of the movie that I remember is, is just the really factual nature of the history of why our public school education system looks the way it does now and how it doesn't make sense in our current reality and our current society. Um, even it makes me like I walk into my cafeteria and it makes me rethink how we sit in cafeterias and how we eat lunch and things like that. So it's really shaken me. <laughs> and the conversations leading after that conversation at the movie, um, the screening, it's just it was almost like a 
little fire and then a wildfire. I was talking to as many people as I could. I kept saying like, did you watch that movie? If you did, like, I don't, you know, like, let's talk about it because it made me confused about how I was teaching and what, am I doing it the right way? Am I doing it the best way? So it was the best thing to happen to me, I think, at that moment in my life. Was, I, was that, that must have been my second or third year teaching? Maybe my second year? It's pretty mm-hmm. early on. I think on. it was your second year. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I also remember talking with people outside of the education sector because it, it, it was like very clear to me how education can't be siloed. It's just so connected with everything else. Uh, and that movie really made me think about that. Yeah. We, we made a very deliberate decision that night to have a very diverse crowd. Um, so it wasn't just educators, it was actually community oh, members okay, from yeah. every walk of life. Mm-hmm. And you recall the format after the film was that everybody was seated at um, round tables, and there were about seven or eight people per table. Mm-hmm. And we asked that everyone after the film jot down the essential questions or the important questions that were raised by the film. What do you remember about that moment when people were writing down the questions and what questions were coming to your mind at that point? Oh, yeah. It's funny. As soon as you said it, I had a visual, like kind of a visual memory of all of these post-its littered around my notebook because I, I remember the essential questions now and I was just scribbling it madly. And yeah, a big part of my questions focused around like what, what are we doing now and how could it look to really help kids Um, why don't we know about the history? That was my big question. Why is it that I've gone this long in my life, not just as an educator, but also as a student, a former student, why don't I know that this is the reason why schools look like this now? Um, And why aren't we questioning it more? And I remember just, I I felt excited, but also a little angry, to be honest. I didn't didn't know what to do with that feeling. I just, I wanted to learn more. Um, And at that point, because it was early on in my career, I didn't really know who to talk to. I think that was the problem. So being in that space with educators, community members, students, it was a really good opportunity to talk with people and start making those connections early on. And what were the conversations like in the weeks and months that followed? Like, do you remember going to school the next time and you you talk about not sure who to talk to about it. I'm sure that that must have been, there must have been a little bit of anxiety there because Mm -hmm. what you had seen was sort of mind-blowing, but how do you talk to people about something that's mind-blowing? It was sort of like a really, really bad secret I was holding by myself or something. (laughs) I walked into school and I, I knew that I had changed in my mindset and like, and I knew that what I was doing, you know, as a teacher, you, you have to sit and sometimes reflect. Maybe the way I'm doing it now isn't the best way for kids. And so I, re- I had to talk to myself about it. Uh, and I remember, like, slowly kind of reaching out to my friends at school, my teacher friends, and seeing, like, where do, does everyone else's sort of um, values lie? Like, what do people think about it? How much of this has been so ingrained in us that we just do the daily grind because we're asked to do it? Um, and as a second thought, like, how much of that does that suck out the passion from our profession because we keep doing what we're supposed to, quote unquote, supposed to do? So slowly I found that there are many teachers who, you know, are, they're questioning it. They're wondering why things are the way they were. Um, and I kept telling people about this movie. And I was like telling my principal about it. And we actually ended up having a school screening of it uh, at our, in the school library. And our, we like popped popcorn and we were all sitting there. And that felt really like an important moment for our school. To me, I don't know if it felt that way for other people, but 
the, the energy around it afterwards where we got to talk to each other about it, it was a lot of teachers not only reflected on themselves as teachers, but they were really thinking about what their lives as students were because, you know, it was basically challenging how we were put through this sort of education system that is a little bit mm. expired or outdated. Yeah. So I want to I wanna ask you specifically about one character in the film, mm-hmm. uh, Most Likely to Succeed. So... The film tells a number of stories. Um, the two main stories are Samantha and Brian. Um, and so those of you out there who are listening to this episode and you've seen most likely, you know what I'm talking about. Um, Samantha is the story of a very shy girl who becomes um, very outgoing and becomes the school or, or this project play director and she blossoms in this role. Brian is a different story. Brian is a, um, a big dreamer. He's a procrastinator. Um, which might be a difficult conversation or a difficult difficult uh, combination. And in the end, Brian, in this massive public exhibition of learning that happens at High Tech High in San Diego, his team is unable to finish the project and they're, they're not able to exhibit that night. So I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about Brian and how the film portrays him in a somewhat heroic light that he keeps on working all the way through the summer until he finishes his project, but his teammates actually don't work through that process with him. What do you think about Brian? And what do you think about failing forward? And what do you think about collaborating with other people where you've got that kind of situation unfolding? Yeah, um, watching Brian, there was a one night that I went to the screening and then the DVD, when they were playing it, had skipped and or something happened and then they didn't play the rest of weren't able to play the rest of the ending and was, actually Ted Gingersmith was there that, that was night. his first public screening That's in the right. state of Hawaii and the DVD <laughs> yes, failed yes. in the last two minutes yes. yes and I remember because that was my must have been second time seeing it I remember thinking no if the rest of the audience is the, if this is their first time that's like the that moment that the, the film really talks about how Brian works through this whole summer's worth of um, work to, to finish it right and my thoughts about him the very first time I saw it it was you know very heroic like he stayed through and it really made me think about the human nature of teaching and learning teaching and learning should not just exist within the walls of our schools it's everywhere and anywhere around us whether you're in any kind of sector of work um, or passion and so I, I was watching him work tirelessly into the summer without his teammates and I, I my, my biggest hope is that he was able to reflect upon the way that it ended up. And even though he worked really hard, even though the product was there, was he able to reflect on his collaboration with his team? Or maybe even the feeling of like letting someone down or letting a team down, that's an okay feeling to feel, but where do we go from here? And that's sort of my philosophy about everything, and I think most teachers is growth, right? As a teacher, you never ever arrive. And most human beings don't really arrive at a goal if you're always trying to better yourself. So I just wrote up, someone taught me this acronym, but FAIL, F-A-I-L. I wrote it on the board for my kids today and I said, you know, I fail all the time, all the time. I literally failed this morning and the other day. And what I came to look at it is someone shared with me, F-A-I-L, F stands for first, A stands for attempt, I stands for in, and then L stands for learning. So it's my first attempt in learning. Every failure is just that first little tiny step in learning and growing. And that helps really me also as a teacher know that someone like Brian 
though he failed and he even though he succeeded he still kind of failed because he was he failed his teammates but through that reflection process is he able to and was he able to pick up learn from it and have better experiences in the future so yeah it was it was a cool thing there to is watch. a scene in the film where he actually reflects in front of a mm. crowd of people his his fellow oh, that's students. right, in front of his teachers too, right? And yeah. it's, but it, but it, it comes before mm-hmm. he works all the way through the summer. Right. And, and he's speaking to his teachers and to his mm-hmm. fellow students and to parents, and he's sort of admitting, like, oof, mm-hmm. boy, I'm a big thinker, but I'm also a procrastinator, and I've really learned right. from this, so it's super interesting. Right. So this is a perfect segue into um, talking about your education journey. So where did you go to school and... Since you brought up the subject of growth, what was your growth process as you went through school? <laughs> so, podcasts, I, listen, I love listening to podcasts because it always keeps people honest. I'll be very honest. I, I don't think I was the best student, um, in, especially in my elementary years. And maybe my past elementary teachers, if any of them are listening to this, they may have thought I was a good student because I always nodded and smiled and raised my hand at the right time but I really didn't care about school I think that's what I remember the most of and what I don't remember a lot of is my is my time in school um and then after that period of time and I wasn't doing very well in in school uh I started to go to La Pietra Hawaii School for Girls where I met you as a teacher and met many other teachers who pushed me very hard and places that I didn't really think that I needed to grow but I I realized I did so anyway at that school we did a lot more projects and a lot more I'll explain it but like relevant to the community and relevant to things that like service service learning so that pushed me a lot I started to join a lot of clubs and even started some of my own and I realized I had this passion for justice and really wanting people to have access and equity and you know reflecting on my own experience with my family immigrating from Korea and they they always tell stories from how it was back then and how it wasn't easy for them when they first started in the U.S. and all of those stories connected with my schooling experience from there I went to college where you wrote one of my recommendation letters actually if you yes, remember I did. Absolutely. you went to USC USC University of Southern California for 4 years mm-hmm. I actually did not major in education I, I double majored in international relations and public relations and they're both very conflicting majors one is very moral and you know thoughtful and public relations can sometimes be called manipulative and what i realized is that there's a lot to learn in both sectors so i thought that my whole life was going to be maybe i'll do some like marketing or maybe i'll go into if any sort of like embassy internship or something like that maybe working for an ngo yeah exactly nonprofit. so i was excited about it and then i remember my senior year looking at my resume of all of the activities and volunteer internship things that i've done in the past and all of them had to do with kids and all of them had to do with teaching and learning whether it was tutoring in chinatown every saturday which was my favorite thing ever the other thing was I, for my public relations internship, I had chosen an educational app company instead of any other kind of company. So I thought to myself, am I, I wonder if I'm going a certain path because I feel like I need to. And why has teaching never been a part of, in, you know, a part of my fabric of who I am, even though I know it is? Like, why won't I say it? And I think that might have to do a little bit with how the profession has sort of, like, hope it's going to get better but I think the current state of the profession is that many people don't respect it mm-hmm. uh, and so 
I, I ended up going into teaching and my placement school was at Ka'imi Loa Elementary School. So I've been at this school, this is my seventh year now, and I was really lucky to be placed at this school, I think. Did you do mm -hmm. a college of education? No, sorry. Yeah, so I actually went through the Teach for America program. Oh, okay. And so the two years that I spent with Teach, Teach for America, they placed me on the west side at Kaimi Law Elementary School. And then I stayed there um, after my two years till now, mm -hmm. which is my seventh year. Yeah. And walking through the doors at Kaimi Law Elementary for the first time, did you feel like maybe things that you had thought about before and didn't want to name were coming to be? That, that teaching was a thing for you? Oh, you mean like, did I think that the experiences would be like how mm -hmm. I was as a student? Well, you were, or, talking, you were talking about how, you know, your resume and everything sort oh, of pointed yes, yes. at kids and that there mm -hmm. was this thing that you didn't want to name and it was teaching, but yes. you were, yeah, did, oh, that, yeah. did that happen as you came on? Oh, okay. Yeah, so. well, I, I mean, I thought I was going to be, I, was, I don't know why I thought I was going to be the so I thought I was going to be the best teacher on the planet. I thought I was going to walk in, you know, like all of the kids are going to love me. We were going to learn so much. And I, I, my first year of teaching was the biggest wake up call in my life, not just professionally, personally, that I really didn't, the things that I didn't understand, I had to be extremely humbled by and find the people that could help me. And also that teaching and learning is not a robotic thing that a machine can do for you. It is an art and it is a science. And that kind of, that really just made me almost more excited to stay in it. After my first two years of complete like drowning mm -hmm. <laughs> in all of it, um, it made me stay because the challenge of that, the nature of what learning is, I feel like it's something you're constantly trying to figure out with kids. And the kids have to be a part of that problem solving. Right. So anyway, I you know, it was a really tough first two years, but it was so I recall in our conversations as you were going through this time in your first couple of years of teaching that you latched on to the idea of coaching early on and you also started to think a lot about ed tech education technology so I wanted to ask you about ed tech what is education technology Cecilia Chung <laughs> <laughs> so yeah education technology it's funny, I teach a technology class with the, my 6th graders so all the 6th grade kids rotate through different subject classes on certain days, so I go through technology. And we had a really interesting discussion about what is technology? Is it a computer? Is it a cell phone? And what we realized is across the timeline from forever, you know, ancient times to now, technology has always existed in some form or fashion where it is something that's helping people, you know, make life easier or improve their lives. So. I've, I've really started to switch my thinking about what technology really is, but um, what I'm coming to understand it is that it can be a device, but if technology really wants to be tapped, the real potential of that technology to be tapped, it has to be used as a tool to augment learning. And the best version of that is if the teacher is not doing it for the kids, and the kids know on this shelf of tech tools which tool is going to be the best tool to fit and expand and augment my learning at this moment. That takes a kind of teaching where it's coaching student voice and student agency. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think teachers, a lot of us, like sometimes we miss that. In the very beginning when I first started teaching, I thought technology would just be here. Here's your computers and let's do this online program. Uh, I was so sorely mistaken. In my second year, I was offered a chance to pilot a one-to-one -one Chromebook program. 
And I thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I know how to open a Google Doc and share things, and I know how to do all of those G Suite things. But wow, to actually use it as a tool to make learning even more special and more deep, um, it takes the teacher, but it takes the students. So the students taught me a lot, actually, about how to use the Chromebook for learning that year. And I really had to step back and let them take it on because these kids are growing up in this kind of culture. Mm -hmm. I think to myself, believe it or not, but I was, there was a time where I didn't have, you know, like there weren't computers, right? I think when I was born, I don't even know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure. Actually, but, you know, now, yeah. that, now that you bring it up, our classroom together at La Pietra mm -hmm. High School for Girls, when you were in European history and then AP, AP US, US history, history, that was the moment where I was starting to pilot one-to-one -one computers mm -hmm. in the classroom. And I think we're, we were pretty early. We were on the front yes. edge of that. There weren't too many people that were doing that kind of thing. So, right. yeah. Yeah. I remember when you first had us all, like how many of us in the classroom share a Google document with each other. Yes. And we had to craft, I think it was like the Bill of Rights or something. We were trying our... to rewrite the Bill yes. of Rights. Yeah. And we were going to do it in a Google Doc yes. together. And as if was... we were the founders. Right. Going back and writing it again. That wow. was very cool. I haven't thought about that in a long <laughs> time. So tell me a little bit more about the Chromebook project. Mm -hmm. What was the learning objective that you were after there? And what was it that the kids were doing that represented kind of the early stages for you of individualized learning? Yeah. Um, well, there's so many things and my mind just went up a million places. But one moment that I think about is when I have my students in, when they were third, you know, third graders I had at the time. They had to create a Google slide presentation to show their parents during their parent-teacher conference all of their learning in quarter one. And I thought at the time, wow, what a revolutionary thing to have a Google slide and have the kids create animations and show their parents their learning through this tech. But when I, the more I stayed in teaching and every year I learned so much more, I thought, or I looked at things like the SAMR model and how it starts with substitution, et cetera. And that actually was just a substitutive way to show a parent what their learning was um, and so I, I had to really challenge myself about what I, I to be honest in my second year of teaching with those Chromebooks I don't think I did anything extremely amazing and innovative and revolutionary what it taught me that year though was kids have the power to do it and I have to listen there's just so many times where teachers we're not sitting and listening to kids we're just talking over them and it's, it's, it's easier to do that right it's easier to go through a day but I, when I listened to them, I was able to understand what they were thinking with the tech, um, and we could pull that into, yeah, just so the following year I could get better and better uh, at it. So, yeah, to be honest, in those first couple of years, I don't have any amazing examples. They used all the G Suite tools, but maybe I'm being too hard on myself, but I feel like a lot of it was substitution still at that level. Yeah, I have a, I have a theory, Cece, that um, early on in ed tech, and I was involved in the earliest parts of EdTech, that we sort of collectively lost our minds. We, all of us educators, sort of went insane. And we started thinking that it was all about the device. And, and the advent of iPads across entire schools or whole districts was, or even one-to-one -one laptops, was sort of an example of that, that everybody got focused on the device. And then it felt to me like we sort of regained our senses and we decided to put EdTech back where it belonged into the toolbox and we went back to pedagogy and back to teaching and learning, back to the purpose of learning and what school is all about for kids. Did it feel like that to you early on that we were really focused on the devices? Yeah, absolutely. I, it was definitely a buzzword. I think 
technology, um, technology integration, one-to-one. Like I kept hearing those words. And then in my second or third year, I started to go into professional development opportunities where I taught workshops. And that led into my coaching as a tech integration coach at the school. And I was very much a part of this sort of buzzing nature of technology is shiny and awesome and everybody needs to get it now. Uh, What was unfortunate though is that, yeah, we forgot, I can't speak for everyone, but I forgot that technology is not, it's just a tool. If the pedagogy is missing, if the teacher is missing, if the students are missing, what is it but just a bunch of nuts and bolts, right? And I think unfortunately it became a bunch of nuts and bolts to many schools. it's just, it just made me so sad when I heard about the devices that would sit in the boxes and like collect dust or the devices that were being used, but used in a way that it sucked the life out of kids, right? You don't want to shove them in front of a computer and have them do online programs all day. Right. Where is the beauty and fun in that? Right. And so in a lot of ways, I think for the teachers, I almost think to myself, there must have been a lot of teachers who were watching this and just sort of laughing, you know, like, this is going to pass. This technology craze might, will pass as long as they know, you know, the pedagogy was the most important part. But technology does, it does augment the learning for sure. But as a teacher, we need to know how to do it. Yeah. I remember once you and I were having coffee at Whole Foods over on the windward side of Oahu, and we were talking about the fact that you were um, about to abandon your teacher desk in your classroom. Do you remember that? Yes. And so that was actually kind of an epic moment Mm -hmm. because every teacher, at least traditionally, has a desk and that desk is a sacred space and you're anchored to that spot and you were thinking about taking that desk out. We were talking about that. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. I do. What was that like? It was, uh, I well, I really learned so much through conversation and I, I think I remember showing you my layout of what I was wanting out of my classroom and I drew in a teacher desk at first and I think I remember you saying, why do you feel like you need that? And then my first thought was, where am I going to put my things? And then I thought, wow, that is such a menial, tiny little detail that doesn't actually add to the design of that space. The design of that space should be helpful for students. So really, when I thought about the way that I teach, I'm never near my teacher desk ever because that's not even, it's not a thing. It's just a space with my stuff on it. But I could put my things anywhere. (laughs) So it always went down to the purpose and the why. And it was, yeah, it was great. I mean, my first couple of years like working with flexible seating was really scary and I don't have a it's that's like the theme of my life I just feel like I've never arrived and there's so many things I'm still learning but um, right now my flexible seating is a mindset it's not the furniture so there is a teacher desk what looks traditionally like one that every place has because it's hard to get rid of furniture nowadays <laughs> because now flexible furniture is a crazy buzzword right. um, but it doesn't exist as a teacher desk. So how do we look at a piece of furniture and re-envision what its purpose is? So I do have the, te- the desks that we normally see in a classroom, but my kids know that you need to change that design of the layout when you need to. And that in itself is sort of technology. I mean, how do you use the things in your classroom to make your learning better? Um, I had a really very unique opportunity as the um, tech integration coach to work with my leadership team to redesign our library at school. And it was such an eye-opening experience for me, knowing that different furniture can serve different purpose and how do you create a space for not just students, but also teachers, but also community members. And it should always align to the vision and values and the mission of your entity or your school. So I just had so much fun with it. And I remember seeing the moment that the kids got to walk in and 
play in that space and be in that space, it made the library fun again, which, you know, there's still books. There should still be books and reading and things like that. But how, yeah, how do you reimagine a space? Sorry, I could go on forever about that. <laughs> I, I will note that we're recording this interview at Impact Home, yes, which is a I co-working space here in Honolulu, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and talk about reimagining space yes. for sure. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about data and education because you've spent some time um, as a teacher leader fellow with Hope Street Group here, or the Hope, the, the Hawaii version of Hope Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so we seem to be at a moment now where the word data is really on everybody's minds, and we're trying to figure out what it, what kind of data we want to collect about students and about teachers and learning and all of that. So just in your mind, what is data? What is useful data in education? What is it that we want to be collecting at this point? And what is it that can be used in a way to enhance teaching and learning in this 19 years into the 21st century? Mm-hmm. Well, so yeah, so as a fellow, um, it's currently called the Hawaii State Teacher Fellowship, I we were asked to do a data collections on a couple of topics. So the topics that we did were teacher leadership and project-based learning. And the way that we had collected the data, which is which I found very useful, if only we could get as like many participants in these um, data collections, uh, was by way of focus groups. So instead of just pushing out a survey, we would sit with a group of, um, for us it was teachers, and ask them a series of questions that were developed by the team. And for the facilitator, which was me at the time, it was a very eye-opening experience that focus groups especially if it's a conversation, you can collect so many things, like the layers and the nuances of things that you can't see based on survey results or graphs or things like that. I think there's a lot of merit to those kinds of data points, but I wonder how many things we're missing by just focusing on those kinds of data. So I think there needs to be a triangulation of many kinds of data. Um, but in terms of the topic, it's, it's so hard because there's just so many things happening in education at one time and I think that's one thing that if you're not in education and listening to this podcast to really like know that the complex nature of the work that we're in is just it's it's hard to describe Uh, but for example project-based learning that's very important but it's it's such a specific topic and so how do we determine the priorities of what kind of data we're collecting Mm -hmm. is a question that I have one thing that I wonder is if we could have more focus groups, uh, you know, with students. Like, what are the students thinking? We, I wonder if we're doing not enough of that. Or if we're asking them, what kind of questions are we asking? Maybe we need to ask more questions about how do you view school now? What is the current reality that you exist in as a student? And be honest with that. And what can we do as teachers and as education leaders to help make that experience more engaging? And it also depends on, is it the state collecting the data, or is it the school collecting the data, or is it an individual person? So it's hard to answer. It is. (laughs) Sorry. I I remember going back to Most Likely to Succeed, Mm -hmm. that, you know, for anybody watching the film, especially parents, you go through this process and you're seeing something that's just so out of the box, and you can't even believe what you're looking at. And I'm sure there's a lot of anxiety in watching this public exhibition and so heavily project-based learning and all that. And then there's a moment towards the end of the film where they say, oh, yes, and by the way, all these kids scored way above the median on the state you know, test, mm-hmm. or 98% of them went to college. And you could hear the collective sigh in the room like, oh, okay, now we're back to something that's familiar. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how we ever get away from that, that we have to always qualify experiential education by saying, well, unless it turns out the kids actually do pretty well on the test. 
it's yeah i mean it's can it's, we move beyond that can we not have that conversation right and and i think the bigger like the not the bigger question but another question people might ask is if not assessment results then how else will you measure that success and my thoughts have always been how do we define success what are we even saying is a measure like what are we even saying success is because if we don't know that then we're measuring it all the wrong ways because right now success is measured by this kind of state assessment or the SAT or the ACT and that determines whether you get into college and it's I don't I think we need to have more conversations around what success means um, so that, I think that's a perfect segue into the okay. next part here where I actually want to ask you about um, student voice, but let me qualify this briefly. So our Department of Education here in Hawaii um, has raised, if you will, three pillars of our system. And the three pillars are student voice, teacher collaboration, and intentional school design. So there's a very deliberate empowerment process that's moving um, intentional school design and the building of teacher collaboration and the honoring of student voice out to the individual complexes and then in the complexes out to the schools. So I want to talk a little bit about your definition of student voice and specific ways that you see student voice changing the dynamic at your school, which is an elementary school. Mm -hmm. um, how's that happening? And let's start with the definition first of, okay. of student voice. So I... When I think of student voice, I, well, I used to think student voice was asking students what they thought about a lesson, or what do you think of me as a teacher, or what do you think the desk should look like today, and it was um, not student voice now that I understand it. I, I really believe that student voice is student agency. If you truly have student voice authentically out there, then the students are engaging in it as agents of change. They're actually doing something with it because their voices are heard and their beliefs are out there. Same thing for teacher voice, by the way. I don't think teacher voice is really teacher voice until you give teachers the agency to do something about it or to change it. Okay. So that's my definition, yeah. Okay, and so specific ways that over the last few years, mm -hmm. as you have worked as an education coach, as you have facilitated ed tech, in your school as you have developed student voice, what are some specific ways that you're seeing that happening now? Well, I think I, I know that there's a lot of examples all across Hawaii, which is the exciting part. Uh, but one, one thing that I think about is last year when I worked with my uh, instructional coach, so I was a sixth grade classroom teacher last year as well. I worked with my classroom, um, sorry, instructional coach, Amy Santos, and the both of us created a project-based learning unit from our Kupuho Academy training experience, which is a project-based learning right. professional development. Out of Met Pacific out Institute. Of, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so from that unit, we brought the kids around this essential question of um, sustainability and where does our food come from and why does food cost more at this place and less at this place? And oh, I didn't know that child labor like still exists in some farms that are producing the food that we're eating. And a lot of the kids realize that we are a part of the problem, right? So we brought them through this kind of channel of them exploring what their beliefs were and what their values were. And their solution to the problem was, we need to build a garden, Ms. Chung. We really need to build a garden. And I was watching the student voice emerge right around there because they knew that they could make it happen if they worked hard enough and if they researched enough and if they wrote very convincing persuasive letters which you know is a standard right like we're and we're bringing in all of these common core standards 
They had to write a persuasive letter to our principal to even give us a plot of land. We had to work with um, carpenters who had come to our school to teach us like what a planter box might look like. And it's just, I, when I watched them work during the times that we did our project-based learning unit, it was not like watching them work when they had to do things on a worksheet. And I'm not saying worksheets are all bad, but the kind of agency and enthusiasm that they worked with, it was because it was real. They knew that they needed to build a garden. If they didn't do it by the deadline, it wouldn't exist. And so even though as a teacher, I, I try so hard, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. In the end, it doesn't matter to kids until it really matters to them, if that makes any sense. They gotta know that this is something real and own that kind of learning and that responsibility to the community or to the cause. So during that time, I really saw it blossom, no pun intended. It was really, it was amazing. I, I just saw kids that didn't do anything in class all of a sudden pick up and lead a whole group to do things, you know, so. So how does teacher collaboration then come into the picture? Oh yeah, I mean, I think it's on many different levels, but even in that level where I'm unit planning, I can't do any of that by myself. I mean, maybe I can. I can come up with a pretty okay skeleton of something and try my best, but how much more amazing could it be if I sit with another teacher, run it through, and we build something together, and then the kids, while they're working, we can also debrief and figure out next steps. There's just so much more power and intelligence when there's more people in the room. And, but it always has to be where everybody in the room has that same mission of helping kids, right, for the right reasons. So that on a almost more micro level within the classroom is really important. Teacher collaboration for the entire state is such an important piece where I can, I now feel the empowerment of collaborating with a teacher across the state or across, you know, like maybe even next door, the neighboring school, whatever it is. If I can communicate with them and learn more from them, then I also know that I have something to add to this, this whole system, right? This whole educational system. There's a lot more I could say about that. So it seems like it's yeah. in order for that to be valuable, there has to be some element of vulnerability. You have to make a decision inside yourself that you're not just that complete um, siloed teacher mm -hmm. in a room only talking to other teachers if you're on break or at a meal or something like that in the break room, that you're really reaching out because you're thinking to yourself, I'm not the best that I can be. Yes. I can be better. So I'm going to reach across the aisle and I'm going to talk to another teacher and try to get some ideas. Is that So you've been both uh, um, on the receiving end of that feeling, but you've also coached teachers through that feeling. What's that like? Yeah, it's it's what it sh I don't know, it sounds maybe too blunt. It, it's what it should be. I really think, I mean, if we talk about technology giving us access, there's no excuse anymore for us not to reach out. And it does come, though, with the vulnerability because it took me like a while to realize, not realize, but to feel okay with sharing that I don't feel good enough. Because my whole life, even as a student and as a you know member of my family, it was you better be good enough because that's the only thing you should be. But really, nobody ever arrives, right? So I mean, once I figured, out, figured that point out, um, I started reaching out to teachers on Twitter. And now, if you don't know, Twitter is, everybody join Twitter because Hello. it's, <laughs> get up. Yes. Yeah. Twitter and education is a fabulous partnership. We're, we're finding out here in Hawaii so much about what people are doing through their Twitter accounts. It's a constant, and there's actual hashtag, but it's a constant virtual open house, right? Like you can just peer into the lives of all these people and what's happening on Twitter is people are recognizing the need not to just share the amazing things happening in their rooms, which is great, 
but hey, here's an issue. I don't know what to do. You know, I don't know how to deal with this problem. For example, I had a student last year. I really didn't know what to do. It was just, he, he really wasn't engaged. He, he just didn't really, you know, yeah, he didn't really engage in what we were doing. And I, I was reading on Twitter about all of these kind of teachers who were talking about kids who have behavior problems or whatever it was. And there was a strategy that one person had shared, which was a 10 by two strategy where you spend like, two minutes of um, every day for 10 days straight just talking to this child about completely non-academic things and just getting to know them and I said okay I'll give it a try and I gave it a try and at the end of the 10 days I got to know him to the point where we used his life experiences to be the fodder for his argumentative essays so I learned that he has lots of puppies but they're pit bull puppies and he was like very upset that someone said that the pit bulls are very dangerous. And I said, why don't you write an essay about that? We're doing argumentative. So he wrote this huge essay. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but wow. he was ready to go. He was like, pit bulls should not be on leashes. They should be treated like every other dog, you know? And for a kid like that, I think to, to realize that his teacher was really listening and that we connected on that level, I couldn't have gotten that because yeah, I was just scrolling on Twitter. It's hard as teachers to exit your classroom, walk to another classroom, and, and ask that teacher for help. There's many reasons why it's hard, but some for some reason, Twitter is a little easier. Mm. And I've reached out, I've even like posted things like, I need help, I really want to start an aquaponics, hydroponics sort of thing at my school, but I have no idea where to start. Within minutes, I got direct messages, mentions, like, here, talk to my friend, go to this place. People want to help, especially education is a great place, right, for that. Right, so, right. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about teacher professional development because you've been involved in some very specific projects around um, PD. Um, let's talk about EdCamp. What is EdCamp? And uh, tell us about its value, how it, how it is a value add to teachers if they actually go through an EdCamp experience. Yeah, I love ed camps. Um, I've been going for many years now, and I've I was really honored to be invited to be on the ed camp Honolulu team a couple years ago. Uh, and so, what it is is it's an unconference, and the idea is we are the conferences. A lot of times are the quote unquote expert speakers who will put on a session. You'll sit and listen, but an unconference or an ed camp, teachers are put. Teachers are it's like professional development for teachers by teachers, and they get to put up the topics that they're really interested in, and then they'll splash all of it up on post-its, and the facilitators will lasso them and put them into the schedule, and all the teachers have this freedom, or maybe not even just teachers, right? Community members, anyone. I, we've had students I've seen go to ed camps, and they'll choose which session to go, and when they get there, there's no expert. Maybe there's a note taker, but it's usually in a circle, and it's a conversation around the topic. The, the, one of the best moments I remember is there was one group where everybody had picked that topic because they all didn't know about it and wanted to learn more about it. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to be terrible. They're just going to sit there. But technology, teachers, it's, it's inevitable. They researched on their own and had great discussions that came out of it. And so right. what I think what EdCamp really does is it's not just a, a fun forum to learn. It, it gives teachers that reminder that the expertise is already in the room. You are so experienced and intelligent from all of your experiences. How can you and others share in that? Even just sitting and having a conversation with someone else, it can be so uplifting and, and yeah, eye-opening. So I think ed camps, if you haven't gone to one, please do. And unconferences are all over the place too. I think we're talking a lot now about how traditional professional development 
revolved around the idea that you went somewhere, you heard somebody present on something, you were like a plant that got watered, and then you'd go back to your school and you'd run out of water and the plant would wilt, you would wilt. And EdCamp and other forms of that unconferences give a, uh, provide a different kind of energy um, because you know that as you go forward, you've got all these people that you've met and they're the key to the process, right? Yes. So let's talk a little bit now about the third pillar, which is intentional school design. And um, I'd actually like, what I've been doing, Cecilia, is that in each of these episodes, I've tried to end them by asking the person I'm interviewing what they think what school could be, since this podcast series is inspired by Ted Dindersmith's book, What School Could Be. But I think I want to actually bring that question in early and fold it into the intentional school design part. So the two of them are sort of together. So what is intentional school design? How are you guys in your faculty at Kaimilo Elementary and your admin team understanding intentional school design? And how is that leading you guys into discussions about what school could be? A really great question. <laughs> yes, um, I think intentional school design, it's sort of written in the words, right? It's designing your it's school. On the brochure. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. yeah. And I and I think what I'm really loving about the energy lately about being in public schools is that we're given a chance to think about where our school is now, what we want it to be, and how are we gonna get there. And it takes everybody. It really can't just be you know, the leadership team or your admin, it is the teachers, it's the students and bringing in all those voices. And so this intentional school design, it's really, you, you get to kind of paint what you, yeah, what you want, what school could look like. And a big part of it is, I think, revisiting your vision and mission and your values as a school. And I really, really believe that as people, if you say one thing, it's a belief if you really live it. So if you, if your school's vision, I'm sorry, if your school's beliefs is, we believe at this school, all students have the right and access to quality education, all, just all of them, all of them, then your actions as a teacher, your actions as a custodian, your actions as a person who works in the office must exude that belief. That's, that's what I think. And I think that would be the ultimate goal for that kind of design. Because I don't think the design is necessarily just what you draw on paper, what you submit. It's how you're living it out in your everyday life. And so, yeah. So it seems like there's another element to, to intentional school design as well, which is that your school is in Eva Beach, mm-hmm. which is in West Oahu. For those of anybody who's listening either locally, nationally, or globally, West Oahu is a specific part of this island. And that what you're thinking about is actually your place. In, and also the culture around your school that you're that all schools all hundred and or sorry all 283 schools in Hawaii are not cookie cutters they're they're actually located in very different places and cultures across the five islands so how does that play out in Eva Beach how are you guys understanding yourselves as we exist in Eva Beach and our kids are Eva Beach kids and our intentional school design is going to be around who we are and the place that we exist in. Yeah, I I really completely agree about where your community is and who your community is made up of should be defining and designing your school. And so 
for us in Eva Beach, you know, I, I, I'm not from Eva Beach. I'm not from there. And people have graciously accepted me into the school and graciously accepted me as part of the family. But I need to check my own self at the door and say, I need to listen to the people who've lived here for years and years and years when it was still plantation days, when there was still just one road in, one road out. And the, the reason why I know those things is because I sit and listen. Mm -hmm. And so that part is really critical to me. I don't think you can do anything. And if you are doing this, then you're not bringing in it. You're not truly designing a school for your community. You need to sit with the people that are here already, the students of your school who live with the families that live in these communities, and understand what it's like, everything, everything about it and their background. Um, the one thing that our school is doing intentionally, which I think is great, is our principal is really interested in finding the former students of our school and where they're at now. Wow. To the point where we have an alumni contact form. Like she really, every time we meet someone from Kaimiloa, we will, we go, okay, well, tell us, tell us your name. Where, are you, what are you doing now? We, we really miss you there. Please fill out this contact form so we can continue to build this network of people. And what we're finding is. That, we, that messaging of, oh, schools on the west side, kids go through the schools and they don't, and you know, that is not true. There are so many people, and again, it's what you define as success, right? right. But so many amazing people who grew up in Eva Beach, either still live in Eva Beach or go somewhere else, and they're great people and access and resources to our kids now. So how are we creating that almost that loop back to your community? Mm -hmm. And so now we have like career day, we'll try to bring people back for that garden project-based learning project. I said project twice, but you know what I mean. Um, we actually invited somebody from the Carpenters, I think it was, yeah, the Carpenters Union. He turned out to be a former student at the school. Wow, and awesome. so the kids saw someone who was literally where they were doing the things he loves and you know getting paid for it but just you could tell he was passionate about his job so for kids it's also like how do we intentionally design for kids an experience where they can see themselves doing amazing things and that's a big part of knowing your community um, but it is really humbling yourself first I think if you're not from that community I'm actually yeah. having a really funny thought that I went to Ben Parker Elementary School in Kaneohe mm -hmm. and I was just thinking wow an alumni club like there was this girl named Patricia that I had a terrible crush on in the sixth grade. And, and what if I came back to an alumni club meeting and Patricia was there and she yeah. was 60 years old? And, you know, it's just so funny. But just think about the ways that community yeah, is built yeah. when, you, when you stay in touch with the people who are part of, right. your, of your community. Right. So I want to shift a little bit to something that you wrote uh, on Medium. Um, it was an article that you wrote, a blog post that you wrote called um, Teachers. You could be anywhere else, exclamation point. And uh, the point of the article is, wow, teachers have all of these choices about things that they could be doing other than teaching. And oftentimes, those jobs, those careers would pay better and would yield better circumstances because of the nature of teaching and the way that we don't pay it as well as it should be. And so my question to you is, Cecilia Chung, you could be working at Google. You could be working at IBM. You could be working um, for the federal government. You could be in the White House. But you're a teacher. Mm -hmm. Why? Well, it's always sounds so um, kind of cheesy when I say it, but it's just so true. It really is because of the kids. And this is the only kind of job where you are directly impacting another human being in such a way that it could change the trajectory of their lives. Um, when I first wrote that article, when I first had the idea for the article, it was many, it was my first year of teaching where I just remember thinking, 
even to myself, why am I here? Mm. I don't understand. This job is too hard. There's just so many, so much yellow tape and not enough place for like creativity to flourish or anything like that as a professional. And a lot of my other friends are making many more dollars than I am working at places that it's a little bit easier of a job. And, you know, so I, it really was a question for me, like, what am I doing here? But after a year's worth, a six, two years worth of teaching and learning with kids, I'm like, oh man, I'm hooked into this. I am here forever <laughs> because right. it's something about working with other human beings in a way that you are molding their future. It's something you can't find in a lot of other jobs. So in that article when I had written, when someone asked me, why aren't you working at Google? Why aren't you working at these places? I know a ton of people working at these places. That sounded like I'm so, I actually don't know. Okay, I, maybe a couple people working at Google, etc. Right. I don't know that they're all happy there, right? If that's their passion, I'm so happy for them. But just because the name of that company sounds really flashy and cool, doesn't really mean that it's a great place to work. And it's a, you know, there's a lot of people who move to different places. And in our generation currently, like the millennial generation that I'm in, our instinct is to move to different jobs in different sectors many times because we're constantly finding, we're trying to find out where are we going to make the best impacts, right? It's like the millennial existential question of our lives. Where are we going to make the best impact? Why am I not doing enough for the world? I really feel like teaching is the best place for that kind of question. It's, you'll, you'll never answer it, but you know that it's happening. And um, yeah, I wouldn't, I don't know, I, I really yeah. wouldn't choose any other place to be, yeah. So a couple of weeks ago, Cecilia, you were named the Hawaii State Teacher of the Year. And I know it's, it's awkward to ask you this question, or, or the question may come across as awkward, but you were selected out of a group of 15, actually 16, right? Because there was a Charter School Teacher of the Year as well. And I was there at the ceremony, and it was pretty epic when you were named. And it was just, it was like a giant group hug happened almost immediately. <laughs> so I think my question around this is what did it mean to you to be named the State Teacher of the Year? And second part of the question is how do you see yourself juxtaposed against the other candidates who were all complex area teachers of the year but didn't end up as Teacher of the Year? I think before, before I even answer that first one, I really remember sitting there and listening to all of the achievements of the complex area teachers, and I was just blown away. And it really was just another affirmation that look at how great our teachers are in the state. It's just amazing. And then I thought to myself, like, well, why did they pick me? You know, what was it? Because they, they read my essays, and what I, I was thinking, what did I write about that may have stuck out to them? And it's really funny because this podcast is making me think a little bit. And the three pillars that you had talked about, the student voice, the teacher collaboration, the intentional school design, that, that is sort of what I wrote about in my essays. Not specifically about those topics, but when I first wrote them, I, I had written all my essays about, oh, I, I helped redesign the library, or I did this, and I... I helped start a teacher celebration, or I helped you know, facilitate a teacher celebration event, et cetera. And I remember reading it and thinking like, oh, I don't really know if this is really who I am. Those are things I've done, but what do I really care about? And people had given me feedback too about my essays and oh, I realized everything that I do is for my students. And so I rewrote all those essays 
like the day before. I hope the board of review doesn't listen to this, but you know me too as a high school yeah. student. Like I, a lot of times I got my inspiration really last minute and I just did it all over. But every essay that I rewrote was back to student-centered stories. So that first pillar about student voice, a lot of the things that I wrote about was what I'm passionate about, which is listening to kids and using what they're about to design my lessons and be a part of who they are and give them that access and equity. And then the other piece was teacher collaboration. What am I doing beyond my classroom walls to elevate that kind of, um, yeah, elevate our profession? Mm -hmm. So I, I realized I, I really care about this. I really want to reach out to other teachers. I don't want to stay in the silo of my classroom. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it, it's important, I think, to network with other teachers and get to know what their stories are to bring together a whole energy to actually do something real. And then the last piece about school design is that I, I realized that maybe they saw someone who was looking at school not just as my classroom, but school not just as the state, but school overall as a concept and the design of what it could look like, really what this podcast is about. Uh, I hope that they saw that in me because I'm still struggling with that question and I really want to do so much more than I am, but... Yeah. You know, Cecilia, in a very remarkable development, at least to me, and I've been paying attention to education for several decades, um, a very remarkable thing has happened here in the state of Hawaii. Our Department of Education is working on something called the 2030 Promise Plan. This is not the same language as before. This is not a strategic initiative or a strategic plan or a federal ESSA plan. This is promises that we're going to make to our kids over the next 10 years. And I, I'm excited that we're using this language. It means that student voice is becoming very, very real. So what promises are you wanting to make to your students over the next 10 years? And also, let's include your fellow educators as well. I think for my students, what I, I promise them and I really, really want for them is I promise that what you're learning in school is going to be relevant to who you are and not who people want you to be. And that could mean so many things to many people, but specifically for my kids, I really just want them to, to know that teaching and learning doesn't exist always in textbooks and that it's in your experiences and the things that you do and developing empathy and passion for, for work. and. Um, yeah, that's a huge one because even just a specific example about literature and how literature, when we read the books that we read in class, my kids don't see themselves in those characters. So where are those characters? Yeah, so things like that. I really, I really promise that I want a place where they can see themselves in the work and the learning that we're doing. Before you, yeah. before you came here today to Impact Hub, you were... Um, working after school in a literature circle, right? And you were describing that to me before we started this interview. Um, and it seems like that's a specific example of where you're promising something to kids. What was happening in there, in that circle? Yeah, well, it was it was an after-school enrichment program, and um, it was a crazy idea that I have right now called the Language Lab. Mm -hmm. And the premise is that maybe, or no, kids can do anything that they want if they have access to some sort of technology and the passion for it. So. I told the kids, hey, if you're interested, and this is not for just a certain group of kids, it's any kids who are free after school that want to join, uh, they can pick any language that they want to study, and they use the tech, and they're going to teach themselves that language. And I'm, I don't know, I seriously don't, like I said, I'm not an expert teacher, I don't even know if it's going to work, <laughs> but 
they love it and they see themselves in the work because they're asking me every single day that they see me during recess and passing time, Ms. Chung, are we going to have language lab today? Are we going to, like, when, when is that project due again? And you can see the passion in them because they chose this work. So, yeah, I, I really, like, something like that, that gives me life. Like, a lot of times teachers forget we need our own passions, and this is a specific passion of mine. I love learning new languages. So it was the perfect intersection of my students' passions and my own. And it's a group of fourth, fifth, and sixth graders, by the way. It's a mixed group. Yeah. And it sounds to me like what you were promising the kids and what you will continue to promise them is your crazy ideas. Yes. Because those crazy <laughs> ideas are grounded in their voice and in the yeah. relevancy of their life. Yes, and hopefully the authenticity and genuine, like true genuine desire from, from me to them that learning is going to be worth it. Mm. And I don't, I don't know. I, there were moments in my life where I felt like, was this day worth it? Was it worth my time being here? And that, that really thinking about that kills me because every day should be such a, you know, a wonderful thing filled with lots of learning and lots of great things. So, yeah. yeah maybe even a little more worth it than it was yesterday. Yeah, exactly. And a little more worth it tomorrow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So, Cecilia, I want to end this conversation, which has been an epic conversation, um, by talking about um, the path forward for you. You've been named State Teacher of the Year. You have quite a program ahead of you. Um, I've had conversations with our previous State Teacher of the Year, Matthew Williams, and by the way, his students, uh, his middle school students in the Hawk Media Program at Kealakehe Intermediate are the editors for this podcast, which is a really fantastic partnership that I love so much. And I've talked to Matthew about what happened for him after he was named State Teacher of the Year, and it looks like You've got a lot of things happening. You're going to be going to the mainland. You're going to be meeting the other 49 states, uh, teachers of the year. So I just wanted to ask you, like, what is it that you'd like to accomplish over the next year from this vantage point of being our state teacher of the year? Yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to um, going out and meeting the other 49 teachers like from the, the continent and other, you know, Alaska, but the thing, I thought I was excited to meet them because I want to learn, and I do, I want to learn all about how their things, what, what's happening in their states and what amazing things are, are going around um, our education system, but what I'm actually really stoked and excited about is to share the stories of Hawaii and how great, like there's so many things to celebrate here and I wonder if some of those celebrations that I can, or celebrations and struggles really, I can bring that's happening in our education system here in Hawaii to that conversation wherever it might be with the other 49 teachers, what that could start brewing, you know, I mean, I when I read, like when I was reading what school could, what be. School could be and they, they had that whole, um, Ted Gendry Smith had that whole section on Hawaii it's, it fills you with pride, and it, it, it reminded me, like, what a wonderful place that we're in. I mean, all of the, you know, the place-based learning that we're trying, the real listening that we're doing to kids and community. So how much of that can I start conversations with other teachers and share this kind of story with them, um, but also really expand my own thinking? I, I'm all about stretching my thinking. I love being pushed into the discomfort zone and just to sit there for a while <laughs> and feel that because I know that learning can't happen unless you're in those moments. So I'm excited for that. I really, the other thing I'm really excited for is I don't know how many speaking kind of engagements I can do and I don't, I'm not very good at them <laughs> all the time, but 
I know that there's so many opportunities to talk about things like teacher collaboration and things that are already happening. You know, for example, like Twitter chats, like hashtag 808 educate Twitter chat that's bringing together educators from all over Hawaii to start talking about real things and lead to agency and lead to action. So I'm, I, I really want to be that kind of ambassador is that the right word someone that can be there to connect people around conversations and I remember one of my first um not for maybe like a couple of times that we had talked over coffee I remember asking you what am I what am I doing like what is my thing in education and you asked me what do I really care about what what excites me and it really is conversations it's the listening and the contributing and the aha moments and and after that it's like the brainstorming of what, what are we gonna do next what are we gonna do now that kind of stuff excites me. And, you know, I don't know if this Hawaii State Teacher of the Year specifically changed that about me, but I do know that now I have a platform and some leverage to actually do it on a wider scale. So I, I know that comes with a lot of responsibility, and, of course, I can't do it by myself. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to working with other people to do that. That's awesome. Ted uh, visited Hawaii for the first time in May of 2016, and after we took him on a three-island, um, six-school learning walk. Um, he left before he um, got on his flight to go back to the mainland. He tweeted that Hawaii would be a model to the nation and the world of education innovation. And so it sounds to me like you're going to be an ambassador of that message. You're going to take and make manifest what Ted was actually tweeting about more than three years ago. And that's a very special thing for the state of Hawaii. So Cecilia Chung, thank you so much for this time. It's been a real honor having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. It was really, really great. Thank you.